This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. This year, over 100 anti-transgender bills have been introduced in over 30 states across the U.S. Most are aimed at kids. Yes, kids. Either banning them from joining girls' sports teams or barring them from receiving medical treatment. It's the latest effort in a Republican agenda to frame a political battle as a, quote, culture war. Chase Strangio is at the forefront of a crusade against these bills. He's a lawyer and deputy director for transgender justice at the ACLU. Strangio represented whistleblower Chelsea Manning, defending her right to receive hormone therapy in military prison. And he argued before the Supreme Court in a landmark case, Bostock versus Clayton County, winning the biggest LGBTQ rights victory in American history. Now he's gearing up to fight this new crop of bills. So to start, I asked him to give me the lay of the land of which have already been enacted and where. We have bills that have passed in Arkansas. So Arkansas passed two transports bans and one medical care ban. Mississippi passed a sports ban. Alabama passed a sports ban. West Virginia passed a sports ban. Tennessee passed a sports ban. And Florida passed a sports ban. Montana? Montana passed a sports ban and one that would bar updates to birth certificates for trans people. I think Tennessee did a medical, correct? They have a medical bill that was passed and and is at the governor and also hasn't been signed yet. And also, I will say that there's still others that are moving. So which of these bills or laws pose the biggest threat from your perspective? So there's lots of things happening. I think the single greatest threat are these medical care bans. Um, We're talking about bills that are now law in Arkansas and still pending in at least Alabama and Texas that would not only prospectively prohibit medical providers from prescribing medically necessary care that every major medical association in the United States supports to hundreds, if not thousands of kids in the state or region, but pulling kids off the care they may have been relying on for years. You know, what we're facing today is the product in many ways of a backlash to marriage equality. Because what happened was in in 2015, the Supreme Court strikes down the remaining bans on marriage equality with the Obergefell decision And many groups had been putting significant resources into stopping that, and they quickly pivoted to attacking trans people. So, you know, we get the June decision. By November, there's a massive campaign targeting trans people using a lot of the fear-mongering that we saw in the campaign to stop marriage equality, but placing that on trans people, on trans bodies. 
And in 2016 is when we saw the proliferation of the anti-trans bathroom bills. And they were mostly targeting trans youth in schools, but there was also HB2 in North Carolina, which targeted all public facilities, mainly to say that trans people can't go to the bathroom that aligns with who they are. So if you're assigned the sex of male at birth, you will forever go to the men's bathroom and sort of implementing this sense that we were going to newly police the restroom. Because it was the biggest crisis of our time. Yes, naturally. Um, so that was really what took hold in, in 2016. And, and sort of like this moment, we saw so many bills. They were introduced all over. They were clearly pre-drafted and just sort of sent out to conservative lawmakers around the country. But even though it gained initial traction in that legislative session, we were able to stop a lot of those bills. You know, only HB2 in North Carolina became law. There was significant backlash. A lot of companies pulled out. A lot of companies pulled out. The NBA pulled the All-Star game. The NCAA pulled tournament games. That was a huge deterrence to other states. So that wanes and it reaches sort of a point in 2018 where the fight to block trans people from using the bathroom, which was sort of the fight du jour of the people who were focusing on marriage for the decade prior, booze everywhere. They have multiple ballot campaigns that they have lost, including in Anchorage, Alaska, in Washington State, in Montana, and then they've lost every single case in court. And in 2019, they pivot to two issues, which is what we're seeing now in 2021. Efforts to ban particularly trans women and girls from women's sports and efforts to block or otherwise criminalize healthcare for trans young people. There's a meeting that happens at some point in 2019, you know, among conservative groups, including ALEC. All right, explain what ALEC is. So ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Mm -hmm. It's a conservative think tank that has over the last several decades, been instrumental in crafting model legislation that then gets sent out. And you can sort of see at different moments the same types of bills moving in, in every state. It's why, you know, this year it's trans kids in sports and voter suppression and anti-protest. And so you have this idea that there's a crisis that is manufactured by groups that have long been working to solidify particular norms of gender and sexuality manifest, you know, in, in many ways. Right. But they've picked this perfect subject because it's young kids and somewhat of a threat. It's better than bathrooms. It's even more, feels threatening, I think. I can see them talking about it. So the focus here on kids, do you think it's working in this case? Because it was slightly focused on kids, the bathroom bills. This is full-scale focusing on kids. Yeah. I mean, so they're focused on kids. The animating principle behind them is it's harmful to be trans and we should stop people from being trans. And so it's not working. You can't stop people from being trans unless you kill them. And I think on some level, there's that impulse behind them. Um, and, you know, in Arkansas, for example, you had pediatric endocrinologists testifying, saying, my patients will die. And the lawmakers passing the bills anyway. So is it working in the sense of, is it garnering support it's hard to say because the political realities are such that these are supermajority conservative legislatures a lot of times that can, you know, decide something is a priority and pass it. But it's working insofar as is it is creating a ton of fear. It is modeling itself after the anti-abortion movement. You are starting to see protesters outside of gender clinics in the same way we do outside of medical health centers that offer abortion services. Can you articulate what their argument is? You know, you have to know as a lawyer what their best argument that they're using. So I will say with the medical care, I'm sort of surprised how 
effective they've been in mobilizing support for what is a, a incredibly anti-medicine, anti-science position. Um, Have you met COVID response, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, well, right. So, <laughs> so, so, so yes, we love to ignore science. I definitely recognize that, but their argument is this is experimental care, which is not true, and that these are young kids who, you know, what if they regret it? And I think that these arguments are being offered in the state legislatures, at least, in incredibly bad faith, especially when we're talking about the care that just pauses puberty. It is simply giving kids more time before undergoing these physiological changes. The thing that is permanent is the puberty. And the other thing I would say when it comes to care for trans young people that is being banned, a lot of the language around it makes it sound like it's surgical interventions when, first of all, no medical treatment is provided pre-puberty to trans young people. And the overwhelming majority of the care that we're talking about is either pubertal suppression or affirming hormone therapy. So this is not surgical intervention. Meanwhile, in pediatrics, full stop, we empower children and their families and their guardians to make a lot of decisions about their care. This totally disrupts that. I mean, you know, I have an eight-year-old and when we go to the pediatrician, we are given information and, and parents and, and guardians and the, their children are given a ton of autonomy. It's actually a fundamental right. One of these bills interested in Texas would equate gender-affirming treatment with child abuse. What's the argument there and do you think it will be enacted? So Arkansas's bill that passed wasn't criminal, but Alabama, for example, has a pending bill that's also, it makes it the care of felony. It criminalizes the doctors directly. Texas's version of it not only would sort of enact the criminal penalties if passed, but then also authorize Child Protective Services to come in, which is completely beyond the pale in many ways. You know, threatening to remove children from loving homes where their parents are providing them medical treatment that is consistent with what doctors are recommending. And it has passed the Senate, hopefully will not pass the House, because the idea that we're going to take kids from their homes because they're getting the health care that they need is terrifying. Okay, so people who support sports legislation say that transgender athletes have an unfair advantage in girls' and women's sports. Is there proof that transgender athletes have an advantage? No, there's no proof. And we now have 33 states that have introduced bills and exactly zero of them have identified a single trans athlete in their state. Full stop, let alone one who's who's doing well, let alone one who's- Winning all the awards, right, right. Yeah, we have heard about this, you know, for the last few years, but we have also heard about it for the last few decades. In 1977, a New York Supreme Court ordered the U.S. Tennis Federation to allow Renee Richards to compete in the women's category of the U.S. Open. She lost in the first round. The entire conversation was, it might be okay now, but trans women will soon take over women's sports. That was 45 years ago. Trans people have been competing in the NCAA since 2011, at least, in the Olympics since 2004. No trans athlete has ever, until maybe today, qualified for the Olympics, let alone won a medal. Trans women are not dominating. They point to four examples of some trans athletes in the U.S. who have had some success. All of these athletes have graduated, are not competing. So no, this is not a real problem. Listen, we're in a pandemic. We're having sports seasons ended. We have huge inequalities in women's sports. There are many threats to women's athletics. Trans women and girls are not 
one of them, which is why every major women's rights organization opposes these bills, which is why Women's Sports Foundation opposes these bills. And yet they're being pushed by lawmakers who have no history of doing anything for women who will stand and debate an abortion ban and then get up and say that they are working to ban trans women and girls from sports because they care so much about women. So what I believe you're saying is these Republican lawmakers are just really concerned about women. Yes. Yeah. They have deep, deep concern. No. And yes, I think that's important because these are called, these bills are called things like Fairness for Women's Sports Act, Protect Women's Sports. And they are being touted as these feminist initiatives when I think it's very clear that not only is that not true, but in fact, many of these bills have within them enforcement language that would police the bodies of all young women and girl athletes. And just checking people's genitals, convening panels of doctors. And and we have no trans athletes competing by and large. So who's it going to harm? It's going to harm cis women and girls. And that, I think, just makes the whole thing even more perverse. Yeah, and creepy. Um, Now, speaking of which, feminist issues, Caitlyn Jenner, more recently, who's running for governor in California, is one of the most famous transgender people in the world right now, voiced her support for these bills, saying that, quote, it just isn't fair. We have to protect girls' sports in our schools. What did you think when you saw that? Uh, you know, she's running for Republican governor of California. She's not a scientist. She's not a doctor. She's not a lawyer. I thought that it wasn't surprising and it was hugely disappointing. But these bills represent a rhetorical mechanism for gaining support for a political movement that has nothing to do with trans people, that has nothing to do with women's sports. And so anyone can spout that rhetoric. Um, And it's not, you know, surprising that someone who is using the moment to be opportunistic in a political campaign would do so. Um, So, you know, it is what it is. (laughs) So the first of these uh, student-athlete bills, HB 500, was enacted in Idaho last year. But a federal judge has put it on hold while a related case, Hecox versus Little, is making its way through the courts. You argued in this case in the Ninth uh, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on May 3rd. Tell me about how that went and where the case stands now. Yeah, so the district judge put a preliminary injunction in place. So essentially the law is blocked. It never really went into effect. And that still is true. And now we're up at the Ninth Circuit on appeal. And it went well from my perspective. I think that the breadth of Idaho's law, you know, it bars trans kids in kindergarten from participating in women's sports under their theory that that's needed to protect scholarships for women. It's like, well, really in kindergarten and even the science that the other side puts forth is entirely dependent on puberty. And so I think we're able to get the points across at the Court of Appeals to show just how sweeping the ban was in light of the specific claims about why it was necessary to pass it. Will the ruling have any impact on other bills being introduced? Could it scotch them? Or what is your perspective? So if the Ninth Circuit upholds the district court's decision in in Idaho, that would certainly have a binding impact on states in the Ninth Circuit. Um, The only state that that would cover that passed a bill this session would be Montana. But, you know, it will be the first and only circuit court precedent on this issue and will be persuasive. That said, you know, it's 
lawmakers who are passing these bills often don't care that they're unconstitutional, are perfectly willing to waste taxpayer dollars fighting them in court. You know, as someone who does a lot of legislative advocacy and lobbying, one of the least compelling arguments to a lawmaker is that their bill is illegal. So let's talk a little bit more at the organizations that are lobbying, which you referenced before, even ghostwriting some of these bills. Who are they and how have they worked with Republican lawmakers? So Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, is a legal group that does, you know, a lot of legislative advocacy, pushing anti-LGBTQ bills, anti-trans bills in particular, and then does a lot of litigation in the space, too. They're incredibly well-funded. They have a network of lawyers across the country. They are defending the bakery that refused Ah, to do the cake for same-sex couples. I mean, this is a group that spent decades trying to block same-sex marriage, to stop LGBT people from adopting children, that is continuing to fund cases to chip away at non-discrimination protections so that public accommodations can refuse service. So these are the people pushing these bills. So there's ALEC and ADF. Are there other organizations? Yeah, so there's the local, like, sort of family policy groups of each state. There's Heritage Foundation. And then, you know, there's these newly formed anti-trans groups that only do this. The sole purpose is to engage in different litigation and legislative fights to stop trans people from being affirmed in school or... Yeah, it is not It is not clearly a new thing. It has a very Phyllis Schlafly feel to it. It is Phyllis Schlafly to a T. Like, it's the moralistic panic. It's Anita Bryant. It's the same iterations that we've seen... Except with a Facebook page or whatever. It, right, except we have social media and we have a different way of democratizing the spread of information. It, you know, that's sort of a generous way to say it. But you know, it's the same arguments that were leveraged against, um, you know, women's rights, period. So how do they work with Republican lawmakers? Sketch it out for us. So what we can glean from what's happened in the last two legislative sessions is that either the lawmakers will reach out to them directly and say, you know, I noticed that you were representing this student who was suing their school or their state because they didn't want to be in proximity to trans people. I want to make that a law. Will you write a bill for me? Or as is the case with these sports bills and healthcare bills in particular, there were pre-drafted bills that are then sent out to lawmakers or there's different convenings where conservative legislators can go and get sample legislation, bring it back to their state. A lot of these bills you can see have the same language. You know, it's not something that constituents are contacting their local offices and saying, this is important to me. You know, these are nonprofit organizations that are donor funded, potentially foundation funded. And you also have like the corporations funding individual lawmakers. But I would say that the groups are playing a huge role in pushing this. And they're playing a huge role in manufacturing the sense that there is some urgent crisis to respond to. And the crisis, as best as they're able to articulate it, is that there are more trans people and that is bad. And we should take the power of the state to curtail the opportunities for this population so that there will be fewer of them. And by the way, we're talking about a population that represents less than one half of 1% of the United States population. And that is the political project that we're contending with. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Stacey Abrams, 
and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Chase Strangio after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Some Republican governors have pushed back against these bills. In April, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed a bill that would ban doctors from performing gender-affirming procedures, though he, of course, signed the other trans bills. In March, South Dakota Governor uh, Kristi Noem vetoed the sports bill, but also signed two executive orders limiting who can play on girls' sports teams. So what's going on here? Why veto some of these bills but not others. I think with Asa Hutchinson, he signed a number of bills, including two sports bills, including a sort of medical conscience bill. Then the healthcare ban gets to his desk. He meets with pediatric endocrinologists. He meets with trans kids and their families. And so I think that for him, I think it was a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. I don't think he is so connected to or caring about the community, but this, I think, poses such significant and catastrophic threats that he really didn't think it should become law. Now, um, what, what is happening with Governor Noam? You know, South Dakota has been this sort of hotbed of anti-trans legislative action for the last seven years. Why? Um, because there are certain lawmakers who are fixated on the issue. Um, of course, this year we get the sort of half veto from Governor Nome. I think that she genuinely thought it was a waste of time and potentially a financial liability for the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and the timing was such that she was sort of caught in the midst of not necessarily knowing where the political winds would blow with this takeoff, as it has, unfortunately, and a lot of states would pass it. Or would they be the only state to pass it and then risk the type of financial backlash that North Carolina got where they lost billions of dollars. And so I think I think Noam was sort of trying to have it both ways. That ended up not really succeeding for her either way, and everyone was pissed. And that's sort of how it landed. Governor Noam said she wanted to avoid punishment by the NCAA that might be financially harmful, but the NCAA hasn't actually taken any action on this yet. Why hasn't the NCAA taken a firm stance this time around? 
It's been incredibly disappointing to see the NCAA's lack of engagement on the issues. It does formally violate their policies. Uh, They, by policy, won't host championships in states that discriminate. And I think in general, they have been, you know, less engaged politically in the last few years. There's sort of lots of ongoing direct controversies with the NCAA around, you know, payment of student athletes and and so many questions about the labor of student athletes and all of these questions happening at the same time. There's these ongoing assaults on trans young people and now trans young people in sports in particular. And so I just think that they have been a recalcitrant institution that just hasn't engaged in ways that they should. And, and Well, you do get, you get an interesting weariness from corporations as one social thing washes them over another. But a lot of corporate pressure when it came to Georgia's new voting law, the MLB pulled uh, their all-star game there. Delta and Coca-Cola issued very strong statements, I thought. But aside from the signatures on a letter by the human rights campaign, companies haven't really done much to oppose these anti-trans bills, which they did back d- during the bathroom period, much more so. Why isn't this issue winning corporate support? Is it an exhaustion of social issues? Or is it that, I hate to say this, stack ranking issues, like that they're they're going to go for this and not that and this and not that? I mean, I'm sure there's an exhaustion component on some level and we're all exhausted and I don't know what the corporate exhaustion looks like because these companies obviously have a lot more resources than individuals. Certainly. They're well-fed and well-planed. Yes. So I don't, you know, I have no patience for it wherever it's coming from. I think too that even in 2016, With the bathroom bills, North Carolina's bill was a statewide bill that reached other communities. It wasn't just punishing trans people in the restroom. So there were more hooks for corporations. And now we're dealing with just issues about trans people. I think there is less support. I think that corporations feel that there will be less blowback if they screw trans people over. And we're not, we're just not seeing the levels of mobilization we've seen in the past. And that's unfortunate because I think that corporations have a lot of power over what these state legislatures do. You know, for me, it's hard to stomach because you know that come pride season, they are going to be putting little trans flags on their logos and sending out their floats to pride parades to the extent we have them. And yet we have seen, you know, very little action when it comes to stopping these bills. I've noticed that. The issue uh, is causing much more outrage on the right than it is support from the Democrats, too. Is it because they consider it a losing issue? That is it like immigration, where the voting driver for Republicans against the issue more than Democrats who support it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the political calculus is exactly. I think that it was manufactured so quickly in this particular year, and it's hard to figure out, well, how do we create a counterbalance to that? I do think within the Democratic Party that there is issues of sort of internalized anti-transness that people haven't contended with. But also, this is a political issue insofar as this is clearly going to be a testing ground for what the 2022 midterms are going to look like, what the 2024 presidential election is going to look like. And they're trying to mobilize their base on the right in the same way they did in the early 2000s with bans on, on marriage. Um, and trans people have long been a canary in the coal mine. You know, I think North Carolina is a perfect example. You have a state that was taken over by Republicans. It was gerrymandered into oblivion. And it was a state that then tested a lot of bills that became the platform that led to exactly what ended up happening in 2016 with the presidential election. And if we don't pay attention now, I think that a lot more communities are going to face the consequences of this political moment. It's not just trans people. So the bills we've been talking about so far on a state level and on a federal level, there are bills being introduced in Congress on both sides of the issue. Some would limit participation uh, on women's and girls' sports teams. Others are trying to expand protections of LGBTQ people, like the Equality Act. Um, It's passed in the House, but not yet in the Senate. What do you think will happen? 
I think obviously we have difficulty with Congress um, in general, getting things through the Mm -hmm. Senate with the filibuster. And the Equality Act is one of those things. It's a bill that would explicitly add protections for LGBTQ people under existing federal civil rights laws, as well as expand civil rights protections for everyone by adding sex into Title II, which is the public accommodations provision, where sex currently is not. And I think that is going to be a long debate over the bill. Um, Hopefully there's a way to pass it through the Senate with just a simple majority and it will become law. But we, we also live in a time when we know that every good thing that the federal executive does or that Congress does will be immediately challenged in the court. And so we just have to continue to contend with a really hostile, complex political landscape. Right. So President Biden has urged the passage of the Equality Act, also rolled back former President Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military. He also signed an executive order banning discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. How do you think he's doing so far when it comes to transgender rights? And what more do you think he should do? It's challenging because all those things are hugely important. They're also largely symbolic, other than the military ban, which obviously created a fundamental policy change. I think in general, because of the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock, Federal law already requires, you know, these things. Like, it is already illegal to discriminate on the basis of someone's LGBTQ status. Um, I think that what we need more of are sort of affirmative actions. Um, So that might be taking position in litigation that's affirmatively supportive of trans people. I expect that the Justice Department will do that when these cases get filed, making sure to push out robust policies that are trans-inclusive and trans-affirming that aren't just simply going back to what 2016 had. And I think, too, sort of being proactive on the judiciary is important because if we're going to defend any of this, we need them to fill vacancies to think about what it looks like to have the federal judiciary be a priority. Right. So speaking of Bostock, you were one of the representatives for Amy Stevens, the transgender plaintiff in that case. In a surprise six to three vote last summer, led by Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court ruled that employers may not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. If the challenges to these new laws make it to the Supreme Court this time around, are you hopeful that the court will rule in your favor again? Yeah, I mean, Bostock was incredible, although we made a straightforward argument. And I think that it was surprising, yes. And it was the right outcome, very clearly, even from a very conservative court. It was a very conservative argument. And, you know, it's not necessarily hugely transformative to interpret civil rights laws as they were written. Um, And it happens to be the case that they— But you did that on purpose, right? You wanted to— Yeah. He's a textualist, right? Yeah, we went to our textualist justices and said, look— There's a textualist path to victory in this case. And I think that that's true as well in particularly the trans athlete cases, which fall squarely within Title IX. And then when it comes to the health bans, they are so patently unconstitutional. We are banning care for trans young people that is available to cis young people in every way. Pediatric endocrinologists treat cis kids with hormones all the time. And so this is care that's provided to cis kids for the same exact reasons being denied to trans kids. And that is an equal protection violation. It's very clear. 14th Amendment. Am I correct? I'm not a lawyer. Yes, the 14th Amendment. Yes. I carry it in my wallet. That's my favorite one. It's a good one. And I think, yes, these are straightforward legal arguments that we should win. That said, you know, we're fighting very hard every day to, to have wins in the lower courts so that if and when another trans case goes up to the Supreme Court, hopefully they're looking out on a landscape, both in terms of public opinion and in terms of legal precedent that's very much in the trans rights favorable camp. Um, does the ACLU strategy work here? Bathroom bills did go away, but then new wave popped up a few years later. Is arguing about trans rights I guess, an inevitable part of America's culture wars now. 
it, it's always been a part of it insofar as the policing of gender and, and sort of these ideas that we can decide who is the right kind of man and the right kind of woman have been a centerpiece of the entire project of the United States. And I think that, you know, unfortunately what happens is you have sort of victories in the courts or you have victories in, in the public conversation and then there's backlash. And so, yes, we will be fighting these fights and we will be doing it in a multitude of ways. But this moment is a particularly scary one because I think it's an inflection point. Yeah. Are we going to be sort of on a faster track um, that looks more like how marriage equality was resolved more quickly? Or is it going to be like abortion where you're defending, um, you know, or holding the line from repeated uh, chipping away at a, a sort of formal equality? Yeah. But manufacturing outrage on the right to win votes is, an, is something that they're very good at. And with this issue, it does seem to be working. Do you get that sense? Yeah. I mean, so here's what I'll say. Yes, it's working insofar as people are sort of showing their reflexive confusion about trans issues. But what's striking is that in 2005, so many people said they were opposed to same-sex marriage who, if you ask them now, would say, no, I was never opposed to it. Yes. And even the conversations about restrooms in 2016, people were like, well, I, you know, I don't know. It, it makes me a little uncomfortable to think of a, you know, and, yeah. and so we do, you know, by and large sort of have the capacity as human beings to grow. Well, what makes people evolve? I'm just curious. How does it occur here? It's, you know, more and more people start knowing trans people. People start to unpack the misinformation that they've received. It's watching Disclosure, the documentary, which sort of traced the trans representation in film and television for people who watched it was incredibly informative as a reminder that it's not that you've had no exposure, it's that you've had terrible exposure and that there is an unlearning process. And I think that is what's going to happen here. We're going to see more trans people in our lives. We're going to realize that trans people are part of our communities. We will see more space for people to thrive. And in turn, you know, people's views will shift. I've watched so many people's views shift over time on so many issues. And I, I still believe that we have a capacity for that change. It's unfortunate how much violence people have to survive first and in the midst of, of other people's learning. And it should never be that way, but it continues to be. I noticed your your dad is a Trumper, so it's not a Trumper, but a, a Fox watching, I guess. Oh, a, he is a Trumper as well. <laughs> My yeah. mom voted yeah. for Trump and is a Fox watcher. Um, when I think about why I do things I do, what part of growing up got you into this? I, you know, I studied history. I, I was always interested in historiography and sort of the way in which we tell our history and why. And how power operates within that. And, and so I've just been drawn to do, to being in service to my community. Um, I was always a very intense person and very driven, insufferable, I'm sure, to live with growing up. And so I think that was also just me. Right. You're also just who you are in these sort of fundamental personality ways. And, and I, I think I learned that a lot through having my own kid and, and being like, wow, like, yes, I can do all sorts of things, but you are you. Which is another thing too, I feel like it's so striking when we talk about trans kids and our kids know who they are. Mm -hmm. And, and it, right you know, it, and, yes. And one of the things that's been so strange about this time and, and my kid until last week was in Zoom school every single day is that we were also proximate to people, mm -hmm. you know, it's like we're working and I'm doing a podcast or I'm prepping a court argument and my kid is right there mm -hmm. doing, you know, third grade math. My kid is incredibly aware of it. You know, her world has always been one where transness is central. So the concept of gender controlling 
who we are, either because of sort of personality traits or because of bodily characteristics, makes no sense to her. Because it's like, my dad is this way, and that is true. (laughs) And so the idea that a dad can't have this body or a dad can't have been assigned female at birth just is incomprehensible to her because it is counter to her factual experience of the world. And so, you know, she just has an openness of possibility that is really beautiful to see. And, And so she's also like, well, what is the point of this? Is that the question she asks you these days? Well, I mean, I was practicing my argument for her. So she was like, what is testosterone? Um, but, um, you know, so that was that was where we it's are. It's a good question. And, you know, she has her, again, like she has her own set of interests, which is just another thing too, is she's like, I never want to be a lawyer. What you do seems so miserable and stressful. <laughs> and our kids are, again, it's like, this is a child who has such a strong, clear sense of self. You know, and that is true for the trans kids who know exactly who they are in a world that is telling them that they can't be that over and over. And they're like, but I am that. Indeed. All right. On that note, thank you so much, Chase. Thank you. All right. Bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Raza, Blake Nishik, Hiba el Matt Kwonk, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Liriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcast, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.